I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. The main religious affairs news item this week, overriding all others, was the farewell of Pope Benedict XVI, the first pope to resign in more than 600 years. The last pope called Benedict to resign being Benedict IX, an infamous rake who sold the papacy. This is how the now Pontiff Emeritus addressed the vast crowds gathered in St Peter's Square for his final audience on Wednesday using the English language in this extract. The decision I have made after much prayer is the fruit of a serene trust in God's will, the deep love of Christ's church. I will continue to accompany the church with my prayers and I ask each of you to pray for me and for the new Pope. By now, the cognoscenti and the pundits have had their say on the career and abdication of Joseph Ratzinger and its aftermath. But our experts have yet to be heard. A group of children aged between 6 and 12 from Kilconley Primary School in Ballybunion in County Kerry. Out of the mouths of babes, as St Matthew's Gospel says. Isn't there a hotel where it's like if the Pope has resigned you, they, all the bishops go to one hotel and this hotel is only for the bishops when a pope resigns and no one else can go to it. It's only the bishops and, and it's only if the commissioner uh, invites you, you, ja- you can't book a room. I think it's good because he's kind of getting too old for it. He normally doesn't retire, he normally just dies. And maybe because he, uh, he just didn't want to do it because he just didn't like the job. What does he do? He goes around and to different places. He um, goes around to churches and he makes sure that everything's okay and he's, he's, in, charge and he's in charge of all the churches and all the priests and all and he fixes things that fall over in the church. Does he fire them? The priest. It's like he worked as, do you know when the, it was like old prayers and now they've made them new. He was going, changing them and stuff. That's what he'd done. Do you think he'd be grumpy or... Because he doesn't have the smiliest face either. <laughs> when he's having a good day, he's probably nice. But when he's having a bad day, he could be, like, extremely grumpy. He's very, like, all the dresses are very fancy and, like, kingly. And Did he get paid for his job or did he just get all his, like, mobile and stuff? Does he have a house? Like, does he even have... Where does he live? I don't know. When... I don't think he has any money. I don't think he gets paid for his job because everything is funded by the Catholic Church. Who? look after him though when he's like is he just gonna go and settle down and just he might find another job the retirement age for most jobs is 65 so he'd just be kind of getting paid or else put in a home wouldn't he i wonder if he'll get a pension yeah like do popes get pensions i don't put the pope on the doll but i just think that like he might melt all his stuff down so he could buy his house back. He's depressed that he he's not the Pope anymore. Like, yeah. Well, he decided not to be the Pope anymore, so, you know, it's kind of his fault because he decided not to. And I suppose his health isn't very good either. Would he, he still be, like, um, a religious person, like a priest or something? like? Yeah. He's still Catholic-like. Or would he be a bishop? No. Will he go down to rank to the bishop? I think he's going to sit at home and read a lot of books. He's definitely going to go to Mass again. Just because he retired doesn't mean that he shouldn't go to Mass. It's very important going to Mass. 
Maybe he fell in love and decided to retire and get married. <laughs> because it, it's all over the newspapers and stuff, like, and he's, he's still going to be a priest. He's just returned from the Pope. I hope Father Spring is the next Pope. He's a <laughs> priest in Ballybunion. I think the next Pope is going to be, like, a very smart man. Um, <laughs> and... He should pray a lot as well. You know the way he's older, so he's kind of weaker, so you could give him a shot of that dog stuff that makes him go to sleep. <laughs> kill the Pope! No, not kill him. He's not the Pope anymore either. But, not, but like, if he's got no one there for himself or anything, <laughs> he'd just be on his own. The children from Ballybunion making their contribution to the discourse on the papal resignation. I love the notion of the Pope being on the dole. That report was compiled by Rona Tarrant. And in a related story, on Monday came news that Antrim-born Cardinal Keith O'Brien, Scotland's most senior Catholic, had been ordered to resign by the Pope following allegations of inappropriate behaviour with a seminarian and three priests. We're joined now on the telephone by Chris Lamb of the English Catholic magazine the tablet. Chris, the first time we ever spoke to you on this programme it was about Cardinal O'Brien when gay rights group Stonewall christened him Bigot of the Year after he opposed same-sex marriage. Now while we stress that these are only allegations, isn't there a sense of irony here? Well yes, I mean we just don't know um, the substance of these allegations but yes, some people are pointing out that there is an irony here. Now, no stranger to controversy, the same cardinal. In fact, I gather he carried the soubriquet cardinal controversy. Yes, that's right. Uh, he, he was never unwilling to uh, speak his mind. He uh, spoke out on many different issues, including things like, for example, nu- nuclear weapons and the importance of aid to the developing world. So it wasn't just on uh, the issues of gay marriage and sexuality that, that he uh, was keen to speak out on. It was all, all sorts of things. I think he felt it was his duty to speak out, and I think he felt that the church needed to have a, a very strong voice in the public sphere. But now, not unlike Joseph Ratzinger himself, in his earlier years, Cardinal O'Brien was seen as something of a liberal. Yes, that's right. He had uh, made noises, should we say, about things like uh, clerical celibacy, which he thought um, could be changed. Of course, it would be um, getting rid of the rule of mandatory clerical celibacy, whereby every single priest had to be celibate. Uh, he, he had suggested those, those sorts of things, uh, and that was before he was made a cardinal, of course. When he was made uh, a cardinal, he was asked to uh, sign or declare a profession of uh, loyalty to the church's teaching, particularly on clerical celibacy. So it, it kind of shifted. But he returned to it just last week. Yes, that's right. Just before the resignation, he spoke out uh, to suggest that priests could be married um, on a, in a BBC interview. Uh, that was the Friday before his resignation was made public. So uh, some are suggesting that, uh, although, of course, the main reason behind his resignation being accepted this week was because of these allegations, uh, it may have been uh, a factor in uh, speeding up the uh, the, the, the resignation being accepted, the fact that he's spoken out in this way on clerical celibacy. 
Now, in his resignation statement, the Cardinal said he didn't want to go to Rome for the conclave because he didn't want to be the centre of attention or have attention focused on him and thus take away from the conclave. There are others who maybe could follow suit, uh, cardinals like Cardinal Mahoney, Cardinal Law, even our own Cardinal Brady, it has been suggested, maybe shouldn't attend the conclave. That's right. I think it should be stated, though, that in church law, any cardinal who can vote in a conclave, i.e. under the age of 80, is obliged to get themselves to Rome and to vote. So whilst people are saying, well, perhaps they, they, shouldn't, they shouldn't do so, they are actually under an obligation to vote. And I think that's sort of something that is not um, put forward enough. But yes, you, you know, you're right that there have been calls uh, for, for some cardinals to, to examine their consciences. Um, I mean, really, it's, it's kind of up to them to, to make that, that decision. There's no real mechanism in the church to say to them, right, you can't, you can't vote. And I suppose there are others who say, well, look, we're, we are a church of sinners, and, and, and perhaps if we start having a kind of, you know, uh, measure of, of who can and can't vote, that might be uh, problematic in the future. Now, this will be the first time in the history of the modern papacy that Britain won't be represented by a cardinal elector. What effect will this have on British Catholics? Well, we haven't got a vote, as you say, for the first time in many years. Uh, I think it's disappointing and, and quite sad that, that, that there, isn't, there isn't a vote. Uh, whether or not uh, it will have a huge effect on who is elected pope, um, I doubt it. We only had one or one or maybe two votes. Cardinal Cormac Murphy O'Connor, who uh, is, of course, over 80 and can't vote, he will be in Rome during the pre-conclave discussions. These are very important um, discussions that take place with the cardinals where they decide you know, what kind of man they want to lead the church. So he will play a role in that. He, you know, he may also play a role in organizing sort of private gatherings with uh, senior cardinals, of, of, you know, which are done behind the scenes, which are also very important. So whilst Britain doesn't have a vote, it does have uh, a little bit of influence. OK, for the moment, Chris Lamb of The Tablet, thank you. On Thursday the 14th of February, in an informal talk with the priests of Rome, Pope Benedict, one of the few surviving participants at the Second Vatican Council, spoke of the difference between what happened there and how the media presented it. Former head of news at RTE, Des Fisher, was also a witness to this major event as a journalist for the Catholic Herald, and in an exclusive interview with the Godslot, he gave his interpretation of the Council's work, with some insights into how the young Joseph Ratzinger developed into the man we know today. Des began by recalling the importance of the council to him. I have always regarded as the best thing I've ever done, the best work I've ever done, the most interesting I've ever been at, and the most effective thing, the most important thing in my life as a Catholic. And I found that the answers were coming there. I was finding things I had thought about in the past coming out now and being explained and being dealt with. And I found it very, very giving me a lot of uh, great ideas and great satisfaction. We didn't expect to be welcomed by the, the church, the institutional church, because we knew that the cardinals, the curia, had fought very hard against having the council at all and then wanted it to be just one year only. When John the Twenty Third put it to them and announced he was having the council, they sat around 
in a heap and nobody said anything to him. He was very disappointed by it. He said he felt very let down by them, not getting up and putting their arms around his neck and saying, great, we love a council. They didn't want a council. They fought it all the way through. Well, one of the cardinals who was enthusiastic about the council was Cardinal Frings of Cologne. And he had asked, he had made a submission, which was written by Joseph Ratzinger, and that's how he ended up at the council. Yes, well, I think that uh, Ratzinger, uh, Frings was trying Ratzinger out. uh, Ratzinger was the youngest of the professors in the University of Bonn. So Frings tried him out by giving him this text to write, but he was asked by Siri to give a talk in Genoa, he asked Ratzinger to write the speech and every word of it he said, Ratzinger said, was spoken by Frings. Uh, He didn't know how it went down. But sometime later, Frings got an order from Rome to come and report to John XXIII. So he went and when he was there, he, he brought his secretary with him and his vestments and uh, came and set the secretary, asked the secretary to put them on him and he said, uh, put them on very well. It's maybe the last time I'll get them on because I might be sacked now because they said things that the Pope didn't like. But the Pope came and put his arms around him and said, great, that was great. I'd love to have said that the way the way you put it, it was very good. So that's why Frings then took on Ratzinger as what they call a paritus at the council, an expert witness, and he was put on the dogmatic commission uh, and was a very progressive theologian. Ratzinger was a friend of Hans Kuhn, and Hans is now, of course, the great bad progressive. Well, Hans told me himself that uh, Ratzinger was quite progressive in his ideas at the time. And and when the council was over, Hans Kung told me now he got him a job in the university at uh, Tübingen. And that uh, during the council, if I go back a bit now, Ratzinger had written a little booklet after each of the sessions. And all of these ideas that he put forward in the books were very progressive. He thought that Rome was far too centralized, the Vatican was far too centralized, that the Pope's infallibility was an an obstacle to ecumenism. He thought the bishops should be regarded as having their office by divine right, not by, they're not, were not agents of the Pope. And generally speaking, he was all for the laity. He was very progressive, according to Kung. And then, when he was teaching in Tübingen in 1968, when those riots were happening in the universities in America and in Paris, they also spread to Tübingen. And during his uh, lectures, his pupils took against him and gave him a terrible time, and he was very frightened. I think Ratzinger is a very quiet, gentle man, and he was frightened by what was, and he left, and became, overnight practically, became a very great conservative. Now, this is Kung's version of it. I don't know how true it is, but it seemed to me, as it turned out, 
uh, Ratzinger turned a U-turn completely in 1968. And do you think he's frightened now? I think he's frightened of his own incapacity to deal with reality. The thing in Rome now is that the Curie is running, as always has run the place completely. There's a scandal there, as we know. Bratzinger can't handle it. He's afraid. He's been attacked, I'm quite sure, on all sides. He doesn't know what to do best for the good of the church. And I think it is for the good of the church, as he sees it, that he has resigned now, pleading uh, ill health and that he wants to get out because he just can't take it anymore. And what did you make of his remarks to the priests in Rome about the Second Vatican Council and in particular about the reaction of the media? I thought it was ridiculous, the uh, attitude that the media media was uh, anti-everything that was happening. The media reports what happens. The truth is that the church was divided. It mightn't have realised it at the time, but the effect, the cumulative effect of what all the French and German theologians had been teaching ever since the 40s, the 1940s, were now taken on by the Council and were passed by the Council. And that was the, the mood for many of them anyway when the Council started. I, do, I think about one-third of the bishops, I would think, were fully in control of what was the mood of the time. I don't think the Americans, for instance, or the Africans or the South Americans were up with the play of what had been happening in Europe for 40 years before the council began. He used the word profane that not only did the media approach it from a secular point of view, but almost disrespecting the sacred and the divine. The Pope talks about hermeneutics, which means the way things are interpreted. And he seems to believe that the journalists have this hermeneutic of opposition to everything. I don't think that's true. I think serious journalists think seriously and write seriously and write what they see, certainly is what I did and what a lot of the people I met there did. They were very fine journalists and they spoke as it were. We got meetings with the Pariti, the theologians that were advising the the bishops. We had meetings with the bishops themselves. I entertained cardinals and bishops uh, and got stories from them. I was very I won't say very close, but I was friendly with Cardinal Sunins, and he talked to me about the council and what had happened. I knew Cardinal Alfred of Holland. I knew the Cardinal of Vienna, and we got stories. We knew what was happening. I mean, I knew that that Sunins one night went to the Pope and said, if you don't step in now, we meaning the progressive crowd, will leave the council. The other bad side, as I would say, the curious side, at one stage tried to stop the council too by just not coming to the meetings and all the rest of it. And Sunans, as president of the council, had to take very serious steps to make the council work. 
and did. And he was the architect of Gaudium et Spes, one of the greatest uh, constitutions of the council. And he was, I think, in my mind, a very, very fine uh, representative of the church. The, the trouble was that the council passed these, in my mind, very fine uh, constitutions and they were left to the curia to edit. And the bishops came back and did nothing, waiting for Rome to act. Rome delayed and delayed and delayed. The bishops came back and nobody came back and said, great things happened in Rome, a wonderful new spirit has been coming into the church. We are in great things are going to happen now. We must be prepared for doing our bit to put forward the church. They just said there'd be new rules coming out and you'll have to obey them. Now this was a terrible thing to say to the people that were longing to be led, given their head properly to do their work in the council. Laity want to do work for the church. They want to feel part of the church. They are now just hanging on with no great ideal put in front of them except to follow the rules. That is not what lay people want nowadays. They want a meaning in their own lives. They want the meaning of the Christian church to come into their lives and animate them and stimulate them and make them do what they want to do. And they're not given that chance. There can be no hope for advancing the church until the power of the curia is bottled and stopped and power brought down. Decentralization of the church is absolutely necessary and the bishops who are the church in their diocese must be given far greater freedom to act. One thing that Ratzinger said when he was uh, a progressive was that the liturgy should be much more taken over by the, the laity, and it, it should be in their language. Now he's given us this dreadful new liturgy we have nowadays that nobody likes, priests don't like, the people don't like. So what would you like to see coming out of this conclave? The conclave to elect a new pope, I would like to elect a young, virile, uh, open-minded pope who will take the curia in hand. And now a lot of popes before this have tried to tame the curia and have not succeeded. The power of the curia, which is really very bad for the church, must be stopped. The pope must be given more authority to do it, to do the right thing and to deal directly with the bishops' conferences. The bishops' conferences need to be strengthened. The bishop in his own diocese needs to be strengthened. The laity needs to be strengthened. The power must be distributed around the church far more than it is at the moment because as long as it's there and what they call creeping infallibility has permeated the curia, the church will not make any progress at all. Des Fisher, who very kindly welcomed us into his home for that interview, and we wish him the best of good health. And on this historic week, that's our programme. 
On Sunday night on RTE1 television, Would You Believe has a profile of Oz Guinness, radical Christian thinker and one of the boys from the Black Stuff, and as he puts it, one of a long-established tradition of Guinnesses for God. Your comments are always welcome. You can contact us on 01208. 2039. Email us at godslot at yes. rte.ie or write to us at the Godslot RTE Radio 1 Dublin 4. So until next Friday at the same time, Gugudi Jishif.